So I just kind of blew past the children's moment there, didn't I? Um, it's okay. It gives me more time now. Uh, sorry for those little ones. As you may have guessed from the Advent candle readings, this Advent season, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, usually we spend these four weeks going back to wait with Israel and to wait with them for a Messiah that will one day come, and then at Christmas to celebrate that that Messiah is finally born and here in Jesus. But that's only half of our Advent waiting. That's only half of what Advent is about. The purpose of that waiting with Israel is to remember that we're still waiting, that we live in a season of Advent that goes all year round, waiting for that Messiah to come again. And so in that vein, we're going to spend this season in 1 Thessalonians, remembering what it is to wait, not pretending to wait for Jesus to be born, but actually waiting for Jesus to return. 1 Thessalonians is a book that invites us to awaken to the hope that we have in Christ. Too many Christians have fallen asleep. We've waited, what, 2,000 years for Jesus to come back? That's a long time to keep waiting and to keep our eyes fixed on it. The Thessalonians had only been waiting about a year between when Paul had visited and when he wrote them this letter, and they were having trouble continuing to stay awake and to stay focused on Jesus who is coming again. And so Paul writes this letter to tell them, wake up, Christ is coming, don't be found sleeping, we're living in the last days, they've already begun, they're not some future thing far out there someday, they're already happening, wake up and wait well. So for these four weeks, as we prepare for Christmas, I want us to remember that we are waiting that we aren't just waiting around, but that we're waiting toward something. We're waiting for Jesus to return, and that gives our waiting a very certain shape. 1 Thessalonians will help us to see what it looks like to wait for Jesus in hope. So as we jump into the letter and begin this morning in 1 Thessalonians 1, I want to invite you to take this opportunity to do whatever you need to do to listen well to quiet your body, your heart, your mind, and to come to hear these words from the book we love. From Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the Thessalonians church that is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to all of you. We always thank God for all of you when we mention you constantly in our prayers. This is because we remember your work that comes from faith, your labor that comes from love, and your hope that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Brothers and sisters, you are loved by God. We know that he has chosen you. We know this because our good news didn't come to you just in speech but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know as well as we do what kind of people we were when we were with you, which was for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord when you accepted the message that came from the Holy Spirit with joy in spite of great suffering. 
As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The message about the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. The news about your faithfulness to God has spread so that we don't even need to mention it. People tell us about what sort of welcome we had from you and about how you turned from, to God from idols As a result, you're serving the living and true God, and you're waiting for his Son from heaven. His Son is Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, and who is the one who will rescue us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's 1 Thessalonians 1, if you want to keep your finger there as we work our way through it. As with everything in life, context is everything. So since we're beginning this week to study a whole new letter in the Bible, some background information might be helpful. If you want the story of how Paul, Silas, Silvanus here, same name, same person, different format, Paul, Silas, and Timothy came to Thessalonica, you can find it in Acts chapter 17. You can go and read the whole story there as Luke tells it to us. There we find how the three of them on their missionary journey came first to a city called Philippi, There they were thrown in prison. That's the story where Paul and Silas spend the night singing praises to God even though they're in chains. The earthquake comes. Everyone is set free, but they stay. The jailer comes in, is converted, and becomes a Christian. But the next day, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are thrown out of town anyway. They head from there through a couple other places to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a a large and important city in Greece. It's a port city and also along a famous and important highway called the Ignatian Way that brought it both wealth and diversity and a high population. There Paul, Silas, and Timothy go to the synagogue for three Sabbaths. They're there three weekends to preach the good news about Jesus Christ. A few Jews become followers of Jesus So too do some Gentiles who follow and worship the Jewish God and a few prominent women, Luke tells us. But the other Jews are upset. So they stir up a mob that runs into this guy named Jason's house, which is where Paul, Silas, and Timothy were staying. And when they don't find them, they drag out Jason and some other believers and they bring them before the city officials. And the charge is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, these men who've been changing the world, turning it upside down, have now come here. And these Christians are committing treason by saying someone other than Caesar is king, this guy named Jesus. And as the persecution ramps up, the Christians sneak Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of town. They're only there three weekends. And they head from there to a town called Berea, not far away, where basically the same thing happens. The Thessalonians come, stir up a mob there, and they have to sneak Paul out under cover of darkness, and he leaves and goes up to Athens. In Athens, he preaches a wonderful sermon, but gets laughed out of town, and so he heads down to Corinth. And there he spends a couple of years. And it's in Corinth that Timothy comes and finds him and tells him wonderful news about what's going on in Thessalonica. And so Paul writes out this letter quickly and sends it to the believers there in Thessalonica in order to instruct them to keep growing in their young faith and encourage them along in the way. The other interesting thing about 1 Thessalonians is that scholars are pretty confident it's the oldest book in the New Testament. And it's not only the first letter of Paul that we have saved, but it's actually the oldest thing in all the New Testament. 
I like to think that it's not just the first letter of Paul's that was saved, but it's actually the first letter that he wrote to a church. I think that there's something unique about the circumstances of this relationship with the Thessalonians that leads Paul to come up with this idea of writing a letter, a format, a new technology that will become so instrumental for his ministry and for the shape of our Bibles. Paul writes off this letter, dictating it to to a couple of others with him to write it to some young brothers and sisters in Christ in Thessalonica. And he begins as will become his custom in all his other letters, with thanksgiving. And he gives thanks, I think, for two reasons. The first reason I think he gives thanks is because he's encouraged. We'll talk about this for a little bit. He's, he's encouraged. He writes and gives thanks to God because his heart has been so lifted by the news he gets from Timothy about what's going on in their church. See, if you follow more in depth the the missionary journey that I just gave you the cliff notes on, it hasn't really been going well up to this point. Sure, God's been doing some good things, but it doesn't seem to be bearing much fruit. Paul's arrested and thrown in jail in Philippi and then thrown out of town when a couple people do finally become Christians. He goes to Thessalonica, and again, they're run out of town by a mob. Persecution begins among the few people that did become Christians. They go to Berea, and the same thing happens. He goes to Athens and stands uh, before a huge crowd and offers a masterful sermon that places Jesus at the head of the pantheon, and he gets basically laughed out of town with only a couple people becoming Christians. And when he goes down to Corinth to spend a couple years there, he actually goes back to his trade of tent making until Timothy arrives. And Timothy comes with news from Thessalonica that not only does the church there still exist, but that their faith is both sincere and deep. That while they may be small and while they may be persecuted, they're enduring with joy. And that joy has become an example that's spreading throughout the whole region. And Paul hears that news and is overcome with joy and thanksgiving himself. And so he composes this letter and sends it because he himself is encouraged. And he's encouraged by three things, he says in verse 3. He's encouraged because he remembers the work that's come from their faith the labor that's come from their love, and the endurance that's come from their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those three things that are encouraging Paul, I want us to understand briefly as we come through this first reason Paul gives thanks. The first is their work that comes from faith. You wouldn't be blamed if your Reformation alarm bells were going off a little bit. Their work that comes from faith No, Paul's not contradicting himself. Don't worry. We're saved by faith and faith alone. Yet, as James is so quick to reply, faith without works is dead. Faith isn't just an opinion about something. Faith that doesn't get to work isn't truly faith. Faith that doesn't send you out of this sanctuary to live differently tomorrow isn't really faith. Faith gets to work. And this is what Paul is seeing in the Thessalonians. He loops back down in verses 9 and 10, if you have your Bibles open, to give shape to these three things he's encouraged by at the top. And the first one is how he's seeing this working faith work out. They've turned to God from idols. As they've come to believe that Jesus did, in fact, suffer and die and rise from the dead, that he was, in fact, Lord, King over all things, that meant that they were beginning to actually live like that was so. And that meant they could no longer worship other gods, so they stopped. 
And while that may not seem odd to us, that's unheard of in Paul's world. It would be like if you left here and stopped using your car and computers and your phone. That's how ubiquitous and necessary the gods were to the Greeks and the Romans. They were everywhere. The biblical scholar N.T. Wright jokes that if you wanted to plant a tree, you had to find the right God to pray to. And if you were going to go on a business trip, you'd need to find the right temple to go and offer sacrifices to pray for that God's favor on the business you wanted to transact while you were away. That if you were going to have a child or you were going to get married or your child was going to get married, you'd need to go and provide expensive gifts and sacrifices in order to try to earn that God's favor. The gods were everywhere and always fickle, unpredictable. You could never really do too much to get on the God's good side. The world revolved around worshiping these idols. But to believe in God, to follow Jesus, meant to leave all of that behind. There was no halfway. You could not worship God and still keep following all these other gods. And their faith led them to actually get to work, to take the radical step of ridding their lives from all these other gods and to turn wholeheartedly to trust in the God of Jesus Christ. Now, while few of us still worship actual physical idols today, most of us are guilty of idolatry. There's something in our hearts that lifts up lesser things to ultimate places. So check out this quote from Rosalie Kudugoret. Uh, it came to me from the African Bible Commentary. She's an African theologian. That whole commentary series is, is words about the Bible, is helping us study Scripture, but it's all written by theologians and scholars from Africa. She wrote this about this passage. She said, Many Christians today are only half converted. They continue to practice idolatry, to trust in money, wealth, spirits, astrology, can they really be said to be disciples of Jesus Christ? Christians have no need to keep turning to idols, for we have the spirit of power in Christ. We must avoid syncretism or simply believing that if we spend enough time among, with other Christians, it's enough to say we too are children of God. Genuine conversion is needed to make the radical life change that transforms Christians into those who wait with confidence for the glorious return of Jesus Christ, end quote. Faith gets to work, turning us away from all those other places that we lay our hope. Family, money, retirement accounts, hard work, our own skill, nation, politics. It calls us to give up relying on all of that to live dramatically differently than the world around us. And as Paul sees these young Christians working out their faith, he's encouraged deeply. But he's also encouraged as he sees the labor of their love. Now, labor is not usually something we associate with love. Love is supposed to come easy. It's a, a pretty thing, a cute thing, a rosy thing, not about blood and sweat and tears. But not for Paul. He gives thanks for the labor that comes from their love. And we get a sense of what that means if we look down into verse 9 as well, where Paul says that they are serving the living and true God. So this is the part in the morning where we have our pop quiz. So put your books and your notes away. What is the greatest commandment? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. At least that was Jesus' answer. The greatest two commandments, love. Serving God means love, loving God, loving neighbor. But that love isn't just a nice feeling we have toward other people. It isn't just not actively wishing their worst, right? Love means getting our hands dirty. We find out what love really is if we look at God, for Scripture says God is love. Love means caring so deeply about others that we're willing to give up what is most precious to us. God loved the world so much he gave his only son. Jesus becomes human. Jesus lives among us. Jesus spends three years essentially banging his head against a wall, trying to teach us what his kingdom is like until he's finally arrested and beaten and executed on a cross. That's what love looks like. It isn't just being nice to other people. It's certainly not just being nice to the people we already like. Love means seeking others' best. Love means seeking reconciliation with that brother or sister with whom we disagree, or the one who's hurt us in the past. It means choosing not to nurse that grudge and keep that record of wrongs. And love, too, doesn't just mean anything goes. Love isn't permission. We'll find out later in this letter. It's love that calls us to holiness, to avoid things like sexual immorality, to control our bodies, to use them in ways that please God and not ourselves. Love means real labor. It means getting our hands dirty. It means working hard. It means sweat and hard work. And Paul gives thanks that he's seen this too in the Thessalonians. They're working out their faith. They're laboring through their love. And the last thing that encourages him is the endurance he sees coming from their hope in Jesus Christ. Faith, love, and now hope. Sound familiar? We're used to them in a different order. Faith, hope, love in 1 Corinthians 13. But whereas with the Corinthians, Paul wants to emphasize love, here he wants to emphasize hope. It's our hope that gives us endurance. And endurance is an important word here. Some translations just say patience. The patience of hope. But patience doesn't really cut it. We're trying to teach our kids patience, and we tell them this is what patience looks like. Folding their hands, standing quietly, and waiting for the thing that they want so deeply. We'll get it for you. It's coming. It's just going to be a minute. Be patient. But standing quietly with your hands folded doesn't cut it. The word here in Greek is better translated endurance. It's not standing quietly. It's what you need to finish a marathon. It's perseverance. It's digging in and pushing hard. It's striving into. We can endure because of the hope that we have. We can wait actively. We can push forward through difficulty and suffering and persecution because of hope. And if we look down into verse 10, Paul tells us where that hope is rooted to. You are waiting for his son from heaven. His son is Jesus, whom he has raised from the dead and who is the one who will rescue us from the coming wrath. Hope, too, is a word we get wrong, especially this time of year. We say hope when we should just say wish. I really hope I'm going to get this thing for Christmas. Today, I really hope my fantasy football team wins so I can get into the playoffs. I really hope I do well on that test I have at school tomorrow. 
What we mean is wish. And hope is something far different. Hope isn't what we'd like to happen in the future. Hope is built on a promise that is sure, not a wish. And our hope as Christians is built on the promise that's already begun to be fulfilled, that God in Jesus is reconciling the world to himself, is rescuing all things. Our hope begins when Jesus is born on that first Christmas. Our hope digs its roots in when he suffers and dies on the cross. Our hope cements itself in place when he rises from the dead. And as we wait for Jesus now to come again, we wait in that hope. In the hope that is, as Hebrews says, the anchor for our souls. A sure and a certain hope. It's hope in a future that breaks into our present and allows us to wait with endurance and perseverance, that keeps us awake, that keeps us waiting for Jesus to return, that keeps our faith working and our love laboring, even while Jesus seems to be taking his time. Paul is encouraged by the work that's come from their faith, by the labor that's come from their love, and the endurance that comes from their hope in Jesus Christ. And all those things encourage Paul so deeply that he gives thanks and, and pours out this letter in an overflow of gratitude. But he doesn't just write because he's encouraged. He writes, too, to encourage them. They're the ones being persecuted right now. When Paul was there, Jason and other Christians were dragged before the city officials and charged with treason, which Rome doesn't take very lightly, by the way. The Jews, no doubt, had turned against and thrown those Jews that had become Christians out of the synagogue for blasphemy, believing that Jesus is Lord. The Gentiles who turned away from idols are now cut off from so many social connections. They're isolated and ridiculed, no doubt. And from the content of the letter, we know that some Christians have already now died. And while all this is going on, this young church has had only three Sabbaths to be converted and then learn all that they need to from Paul to make it through all of this. And so as Paul hears of their fledgling faith that continues on even in the face of opposition, Paul writes to encourage them too, and you can hear it in his voice as he goes on. Allow me to paraphrase a little bit, working through from verse 4 and on. Brothers and sisters, you are beloved by God. You've been chosen by God. And do you want to know how I know? Because of the fruit that's growing among you. When we came to preach the word to you, it wasn't just words and speech. It came too with power and the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And God is the one who does that. You aren't a mistake. This isn't chance. God is doing something special with you. God did something special when we came to you. We were there, what, three weeks? And look what God did. In that short time, God planted the word in you so deeply by the Holy Spirit, gave you such deep conviction that you've continued on all this time. And the result of transforming your lives and following Jesus has been this joy. You've been imitating us and Jesus by facing these difficulties with deep joy that comes only from the Holy Spirit. And that joy, your example, though you may not know it now, is ringing out in every place. You've become an example for people throughout Greece and beyond. People are talking about you. 
They're talking about your lives, your following Jesus, your joy in suffering. And it's become a witness so strong that I, Paul, don't even need to talk about it. Friends, the incredible power of imitating Christ, of living like Jesus lived, of turning from idols and syncretism and faith, of living and serving the true God, of waiting and hope for Jesus who will soon come, of the joy that comes with that even in difficulty is a witness that can change the world. We know the damage that comes when Christians don't live like Christians should live, when they don't imitate Jesus. It's one of the reasons so many are antagonistic to the faith. No doubt you've heard the quote attributed to Gandhi, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians look so little like your Christ. There's not a lot of evidence Gandhi actually said that, but the quote rings so true for us that it's become a cultural touchstone Among the reasons that people stay away from Christianity, you will almost always hear toward the top of the list hypocrisy, that Christians don't seem to live like this Jesus. And when Christian leaders fail, there's always incredible impact. So imagine the power of the opposite. Imagine the power of a community of Jesus followers who really, really lived like it who kept their eyes fixed on Jesus, who were filled with joy even in the midst of the difficulties of life, whose faith led them to live differently than the world around them, whose love sent them out into the trenches to labor with Jesus, whose hope gave them endurance and perseverance as they wait for Christ to come again. Imagine that impact. Imagine that witness of a community that's awake to the hope that we have that realizes we aren't waiting around but are waiting toward Jesus and is ready for Jesus to come again at any moment. This Advent season, I want us to remember that we are waiting. I want us to awaken to the hope that we have and to live in the light of Jesus Christ. And as we wait, our faith will get to work. Our love will labor and our hope will endure that we might rejoice no matter the circumstances. Amen?